week, uh, David was talking about the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is a week-long festival of, of sorts, with the middle of the week being a uh, big, big event, and then a couple more days or so after that as it uh, begins to wind down. So that's the setting for today's uh, scripture. And I think you might find that uh, a few words that I have to say will uh, make more sense if you follow along with your Bible. I love to hear that. <laughs> so, When Pastor Phil asked me to be a lay speaker during his mini-mester, mini-sabbatical, I should say, uh, he gave me a choice between Pentecost or this passage, sometimes called the pericope adulteri. Now, if you, uh, if you are Italian-oriented, it may be pericope de adultera. In any event, someone has calculated that there are about 355 different passages of Scripture that sort of hold together that we call a pericope. Had I chosen Pentecost, I may have uh, broken out into tongues. No, as far as I know, I don't speak in tongues. But when I finish this morning, maybe you think that I am. So, But I will try with all my ability and with God's help to glean some thoughts uh, and insights from today's passage. In the discipline of biblical exegesis, Many scholars in the realm of higher criticism believe that this portion does not belong here uh, or if it belongs anywhere in the New Testament. Some place it in Luke, some place it at the end of John. The NIV has a note saying, and you can see that in your Bible, uh, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. Now, it does not necessarily mean that the oldest is always the best, because there are many, many uh, manuscripts that have been found, particularly in the Eastern uh, uh, manuscripts, where this pericope is indeed uh, included in this location. Some scholars say that it was probably not scripture at all and cast doubts on the inerrancy of John. Well, in so doing, they would throw out the entire gospel of John. However, one commentary I found says that most scholars seem to agree that, this, that the passage is a part of inspired scripture regardless of where it is placed. F.F. F. Bruce says it's a fragment of authentic gospel material. I'm not sure if anything can come of further discussion on that, so let's move on. But before we do, pray with me. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, let's pick up with verse 3. And the version I'm quoting may be a little bit bit different than the NIV or whatever you're using, but it goes something like this. The experts of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. 
they made her stand in front of them, the whole crowd there. Now, in the King James Version and other translations uh, may have the scribes, which does not, does not commute, communicate much to the modern English reader, for whom the term might mean a professional copyist, if it means anything at all. The people referred to here were recognized experts in the law, in the law of Moses, and in the traditional laws and regulations that accumulated uh, over the uh, centuries. Thus, expert in the law seems to be a closer meaning to the modern reader. Pharisees, as you may or may not know, were members of one of the most important and influential religious and political parties in Judaism in the time of Jesus. The Pharisees were strict and zealous adherents to the laws of the Old Testament and numerous additional traditions such as angels and bodily resurrection. So what's the situation here? Keep in mind that they had been trying to find a way to get rid of this guy who was challenging their turf. These experts of the law and Pharisees brought this woman caught in the very act of adultery. Parentheses. Where was the man in this event? If I understand my terms right, should have been somebody else. Was this a complete setup? I wonder, did they pay someone to get caught with this woman? Think about that. Keep in mind, women were not much more than servants or slaves in that time. Even now, women are not respected in many cultures. Sex slavery still exists today. Just read your newspaper. But I digress. <laughs> so they set this trap. Verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What do you say? They are right. Leviticus 20.10 and in Deuteronomy also clearly states that she should be put to death. The question is, so what's the problem? The answer to that is they misrepresented the law. If you read Leviticus 20.10, it says that both are to be put to death in order to purge evil from among you. So my first point, we need to be very careful how we use Scripture. Shakespeare even said, the devil can cite Scripture for his purpose. You remember the episode with uh, the temptation of Christ. We cannot use Scripture to verify or prove a preconceived theological point. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Listen to what Paul wrote to young Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to be eager and do your utmost to present yourself to God, approved, that is, tested by trial, a workman who has no cause to be ashamed, correctly analyzing and accurately dividing, that is, rightly handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. 
the trick is now clear. They wanted the Lord to contradict the law of Moses. If they could succeed in doing that, then they could turn the common people against Jesus. They reminded the Lord that Moses in the law commanded that such a person taken in the act of adultery should be stoned to death. For their wicked purposes, the Pharisees hoped the Lord would disagree. And so they asked him what he had to say on the subject. They thought that justice and the law of Moses demanded that she should be made an example. As the biblical scholar John Darby says, it comforts and quiets the depraved heart of man if he can only find a person worse than himself. He thinks the greater sin is another excuse of another excuses himself, and while accusing and vehemently blaming another, he forgets his own evil. He thus rejoices in iniquity. They are demanding that Jesus respond as to whether the law of Moses should, be, uh, should apply to her or not. So here's the dilemma. If he denies the law of Moses, he is committing a religious offense and he loses all credibility. If he advises execution, he is against Roman law. He is committing a political offense. Thus, they would turn him over to the Roman officials as a revolutionary. Besides, the Roman laws did not condemn an adulteress to be put to death. It was no big deal to the Romans. Jesus' response is brilliant. Verse 6. Now, they were asking this in an attempt to trap him so that they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote in the ground with his finger. What did he write? It's only speculation and of no value to pursue. But Dale Bruner thinks that this act was done to draw attention away from the woman also, Jesus may have been taking time in order not to dignify the question. A kingly silence, one uh, commentator said. Dissatisfied, the Jews kept insisting that he make some reply. Look at verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. Or as the message says, they kept at him, badgering him. Have you ever thought about badgering somebody? So he stood up again and said, All right, but who has never sinned, throw the first stone. He then stooped down again and started writing or scribbling in the dust. So Jesus simply stated that the penalty of the law should be carried out, but, and according to Scripture, it should be done by those uh, who had committed no sin. Thus the Lord upheld the law of Moses. 
He did not say that the woman should be free from the penalty of the law, but when he did what he, what he did do was to accuse every one of those of having sinned themselves. Those who wish to judge others should be pure themselves. Dale Bruner at this point says, with this response, Jesus manages both to recognize, if not honor, the ancient Bible's capital teaching, stone her, and at the same time to honor even more his unique compassion for this and for every sinner, even if, uh, if even sinful human being, and so avert a cruel use of the Bible. Verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Those who accused the woman have convicted, were convicted by their conscience, as the King James puts it. They had nothing else to say. They began to go away one by one. They were all guilty, from the oldest to the youngest. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing nearby. Verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. In wonderful grace, the Lord Jesus pointed out to the woman that all her accusers had vanished. They were nowhere to be found. There was not a single person in the entire crowd who dared to condemn her. The word Lord here probably means simply sir. The woman said, no one, sir. The Lord uttered these words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Lord did not claim to have civil authority in this matter. The, that power was vested in the Roman government, and he left it there. But he did issue a warning to her that she should refrain from sinning. In the first chapter of John, we learned that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here was an example of that. In the words, neither do I condemn you, which is really justification, we have an example of grace. He set her free from condemnation, just as if she had never sinned. The words, go and sin no more, are words of truth, calling us to a way of righteousness, sanctification, a continuing process of growth. 
So another point. We must not misrepresent this event to mean that Jesus was easy on sin or that he contradicted the law. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that he had to one day die for her sins. Forgiveness, grace, is free, but it is not cheap. Furthermore, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law so that no one could justly accuse him of opposing its teachings or weakening its power. By applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, the Jewish leaders were violating both the letter and the spirit of the law, and they thought they were defending Moses. Nor is Christ's gracious forgiveness an excuse to sin. Go and sin no more, was the Lord's counsel. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you, just what man needs, that you may be reverently feared and worshipped. Did you get that? Romans 6.15, What then? Shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace? By no means. What Jesus said to the unnamed woman, he says to me and perhaps to you, go and sin no more. Certainly the experience of gracious forgiveness should motivate us to live a holy and obedient life to the glory of God. The Lord's table is a good place to start afresh. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word. We believe it to be authentic and true and that you teach us that you are full of grace and mercy. And yet you challenge us to live a life that would be honoring to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the hymn of preparation, Grace Greater Than Our Sin.